0: Hello and welcome to the Hay Festival podcast, bringing you conversations with the world's greatest writers and thinkers. We are coming to you today from a very wet and windy hay and why you might be able to vaguely hear in the background the sound of hail battering against the window. And we're very much looking forward to getting into spring weather. And what better way to do it than to celebrate that our lineup for Hay Festival 2022 is now live on the website. You can visit hayfestival.org to book tickets and browse the full programme. There are 500 in-person events to choose from. You're spoilt for choice and it is so exciting to be going back to our field and getting ready for another fantastic year. Ed Miliband has spent years researching and interviewing people around the world who are working to fix the problems that our society holds today. Go Big, How to Fix Our World is his collection of the most ambitious and brilliant ways in which we can achieve this and is a call to arms to anyone who wants to be a part of the solution. The good news is that most of the solutions already exist and there is a lot to feel optimistic about. Ed Miliband tells Natalie Haynes more.
1: I think the thing that we all really want to hear about, Ed, is how come it took you till you were 50 to
2: learn to ride a bike? And That is definitely a good question. <laughs> How did it take me that long? Because I'm extremely uncoordinated. That's where it begins.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, Because obviously I was a bit scared. Um, And why did it it sort of ended up, I think basically my family got fed up with me not being able to ride a bike, my wife in particular.
1: It's nice that you're seeing this question that way around. How come you suddenly learn to ride a bike, Ed, and not... Sorry, Ed. Why did you wait till you were fifty yeah, to learn to ride a bike? true. It's sweet the way you take taken that. I knew you'd be emphasis. Jeremy
2: Paxman. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, did just, it did. It I don't know what. What can I say? It didn't happen. But uh, but then um, we went on a mountain biking. Well, we we went to the mountain biking capital of Europe, Châtel, last summer. Sort of, uh, and I, I say accidentally. That sounds a bit weird. But anyway, we ended up there. I
1: feel like they booked it in the hope of. <laughs>
2: maybe that is true. I mean, actually. not in a mean way. Well. <laughs> well, because because Justine had been saying to me for months, well, how are you going to get to work? You shouldn't be using the tube, da 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 da. And I said, oh, I want to know. She so said, you should ride a bike, and I just that's preposterous, no way. So then we went through a tricycle, um, sort of demonstration. Yes, but I just thought. I thought the sort of tricycle would be a worthy sort of successor to the bacon sandwich, really. Me on a tricycle blocking the sort of cycle lanes of London. Yes. Uh, so I decided the tricycle it's was... It's good
1: that you've grown as a person, I think. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Okay. I
2: sort of, I kind of took the hint. So, so, so then we, I tried an electric bike and it was great. And now I'm a zeal of the convert. Are you a cyclist?
1: No, I'm not. I'm a runner and a walker. Um, So, yeah, no, I don't really have anywhere to store a bike. But you
2: can ride a bike. I
1: could ride a bike if it came to it, yeah. If someone accidentally booked me into a holiday (laughs) in a mountain biking centre and went, oh, look how this happened. I just, one foot on a banana skin, the other foot on booking this holiday, and then look, here we are. You would do it. I would do it. It would be fine, yeah, I reckon. Um, Not only have you managed to ride a bike in the last 12 months, but you've also um, created a really detailed manifesto for how to fix the world, which is excellent news because it needs fixing, Ed. Um, shall we have a little look at... There yeah. are four parts of the book, um, yeah. and I thought we might as well do them in order because that just seems polite yeah. to the structure of the book. Um, but the first part is you talk about creating a new social contract. I wonder if you'd talk a little bit about what the first one was and, and what we've lost, and then perhaps yeah. tell us about what your replacement might be. So, so I think...
2: You know, what is a social contract? A social contract is a sense that you have certain rights um, from being a member of the society and, and maybe certain obligations as well. There was a sort of identifiable post-war social contract, and it's important not to romanticise this, but I represent a constituency, a former mining constituency, incredibly hard jobs, but mining was at the centre of the constituency, at the centre of, of what Doncaster did. It It was dangerous jobs, people were killed down the mines, including two tragic accidents in my constituency. But it, it meant good, decent wages, secure jobs, in terms of secure employment, d- decent pension. Now, it's not to romanticise the past, but I think... I think, And, th- and then we had a sort of second social contract, I say, in the book, the sort of Thatcher-slash-modified-by-Blair social contract. Um and i and I and what I say is look I think what I sense about the country is a is a complete breakdown of the social contract. I think what did brexit mean what did brexit mean? It meant lots of things, but my constituency voted very big majority for brexit. I think a sense that this economy this society doesn't have much to offer me. you know where are the decent jobs, where is the investment? where are the things that you know mean i'm I'm getting something out um of this um and and then so the first part of the book looks at, well, how do we renew it? You know, how can we respond to the climate crisis in a way that creates secure, decent jobs for people? How can we guarantee people decent homes? Why we don't build social housing in this country at scale when we used to for 40 years after the Second World War is, is beyond me. Both government, of, governments of both parties haven't done it, you know. It looks at universal basic income, so-called universal social inheritance, a lump sum payment to people at the age of 18 to give them to give people some security. How business can be part of this by changing company um, uh, by changing company law, and then crucially gender equality and how we can. And I'm really interested in this. We were talking on the podcast this week to the Prime Minister of Iceland, and they have they have believe it or not at four and a half months guaranteed dads. Um, Parental leave, so that's what's so called use it or lose it leave. So in other words, it's, it's reserved for dads. Either they take it, or, or no one has it, it. Or no one has it. Yeah. It's making it, and they've gone in twenty five years from basically zero to this. Um, a country led by a woman prime minister, a uh, massive women's movement. Um, there was a women's strike in the nineteen seventies, which partly led to the women's movement sort of taking off. Um, so so that's that's what i talk about in the first part of the book and and you know there are different ways of renewing the social contract but it needs renewing and by the way you you know young people in particular and again covid has hit young people really hard you know if there is a group in society that needs a social contract renewing it's it's young people whether it's tuition fees or housing or most of all the climate crisis you know I, i think i say in the book we're like the not, not you, maybe, but the, you know, we, the, our generation will feel like the people who kind of partied at the high carbon, you know, at the high carbon party and then left the, a massive mess. Yeah, to clear don't up. look
1: at me. I haven't got a car. Don't eat meat.
2: Okay, don't, well, don't you're in the That's why I said you were in the I'm clear. I'm already saintly. Solar panels on the roof. You're in the clear. You're in the clear. But you know, um, uh, so yeah. So, so I think um, I think there is a social contract to be renewed and to be and to be written for us for this for this time.
1: And you talk very, um, it, I mean, there are moments where this book is, ha, your, your personality kind of Com- pushes its way out, I think. Um, and there are times when you even say, with some degree of
2: exasperation
1: yeah. and self-deprecation. That I've got one. That people keep saying to you, where was this when you were standing for
2: yeah. election? Yeah.
1: Um, so rather than add to that, because um, I feel like you must be rather sad about it. Oh, go it, on,
2: no, no, don't worry.
1: I mean, you know, why were you hiding from us? You're fun. Why didn't know. you show us? <laughs> look how much fun you are. I don't know, really. Okay. I'm
2: folding my arms in a defensive way. Yeah, no, uh, it doesn't look defensive. Uh, don't worry. You're uh, sideways
1: onto the uh, camera, uh, so you're
2: basically just disappearing. Uh, don't worry. Uh, it's fine. Um, why... What, um, what, I think it's partly that the... If you're the leader of the Labour Party, I think it is you know... I sort of feel like you're a... You know, it's like the football team that plays on the sloping pitch where it's sloping uphill. You know, you're you feel like every word you say is slightly being watched, and you are going to be pounced on, and so maybe that got in my head too much. I think yeah, probably, yeah. Um,
1: like kids at school when they know the teacher hates them,
2: just stop yeah, talking. Yeah, maybe, maybe, and uh, and so therefore it makes you, makes you too cautious. Um, uh, I think that's I think that's a large part of it, um, and you know, there is a certain convention for what political leaders should seem like, how they should act, whether they should be making jokes now that those conventions have like been chucked out of the window since i left <laughs> uh, um but you know for, for good and for ill but um yeah so i think it's probably i think it's probably that
1: i mean that's a another question i wanted to ask you was did you have to model yourself in the image of particularly gordon brown because you don't mention him very often in this book but he is on the receiving end of one of like the most mild-mannered criticism I think anyone's ever made you know if you have to be if you have one terrible feature yeah. people say in a job interview what is it oh I just worked too hard but you he, kind of mentioned that he actually did work too hard and he expected the people around him he to used work to
2: too I hard. so when I was in my uh, 20s I worked for Gordon in the treasury and, and early 30s and uh, it was in the days when landlines were still kind of universally a thing and uh I used to have to unplug my phone on Saturday and Sunday mornings because he would ring so bloody early. I mean, like 7, seven thirty-eight, Um And I just I just couldn't sort of bear it really. So I used to have to unplug my phone.
1: But I'm interested that, I mean, don't get me wrong, that's what I would do too.
2: Uh, if but, you were Gordon Brown. But
1: I'm not in politics. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm interested that that seemed like the better option rather than saying to him, could you please not ring uh, me at yeah, seven in the morning on a Sunday? True, it's a bit rude. actually. I mean, that was always available.
2: I think of that? I don't know. <laughs> Well, if he's watching, now's the time. Now's the time. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's a good point.
1: I'm just. Well, wondering. he would say
2: it was urgent.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it's always urgent. though, That's isn't the it?
2: thing about politics, though, because it is such a sort of twenty-four-seven business. You know, it can always seem urgent, um, but it, it turns out it probably isn't. Yeah, I Do think you
1: know that's what I mean? probably. It. I think we're we're obsessed with a sort of it's a news cycle issue isn't it where we want the next thing and the next thing so it all seems very urgent well, was it, actually, well, there wasn't even
2: twitter in those days
1: i'm sure you're right yeah but i think your book makes a really strong case for the fact that that kind of short-termism is is both bad for us on an individual please may i go back to sleep now level and also as a society i do stay
2: off twitter myself these days
1: i pay someone else to be me on twitter it's fine
2: yeah because they, they successfully yeah
1: she does it really well probably shouldn't be saying shouldn't, it on that's public. a secret oh, yeah. too, too late now yeah, by all means, send me your hate mail. I never see it, um, <laughs> nor does she, just Elisa. Um The second part of the book <laughs> is about life beyond the market and how um, worshipping at the great God Mammon hasn't really yeah, got yeah, us yeah. into a very successful place. Um, I think you'll have no trouble convincing me that this is the case, but I wondered how you were convincing people who believe in the power of the market a little bit more than I do.
2: That's a good, good, good question. I mean the book tries to sort of link together you know the cult of gdp gross domestic product you know which as robert kennedy the american politician said what 50 more more years ago you know measures everything but that which is worthwhile you know you you get you get sort of credit for gdp if you cut down some forests and you know start selling the wood for logging you know all of those things um uh where 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 monetary value is the only thing that matters. And I think there are just, look across our society and the intervention of the market into people's lives and the way that you get, you know, how, how life is judged, whether that's, whether that's um, work and the way work dominates people's lives and they don't get time for family, uh, they don't get time for friends, they don't get time off, um, uh, technology, and the dominance of certain um, big technology companies of big tech uh, in the way that uh, our society runs care. If you think about, you know, we, we we've talked a lot during the pandemic about carers and social care workers and how undervalued they are. You know, that is because the mar- that is a market that is a market determined outcome.
1: And were you frantically rewriting that section as the pandemic was unfolding? Because I, 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 was, I was thinking that you you see a lot of things quite a long way ahead, but I thought even you can't possibly
2: have, no, well,
1: have realised that carers I, were going to I be a huge part of the news that. cycle for Well, a year. I
2: didn't see that, but I think I had conceived a, a, a chapter on care before because because it sort of predated it in the sense. Again, I sound like sort of a bit of a, a sc- scandophile, but the the uh, you know the Scandinavians get this right. You know they they don't see that, we make this bizarre distinction between investing in sort of roads and bridges, which is a good thing and has an economic return, and investing in care, which is sort of spending lots of spending throwing money. throwing good money after but, yeah. bad. it? And it's this <laughs> sort of, it's, you know, actually, all of the economic evidence is the best investment you can make, even economically, never mind socially, is in a national childcare, universal childcare uh, system. Um, you know, we know from the pandemic, and it's become a cliche, it doesn't mean it's not true, that about the fact that you know, uh, workers in the social care sector are the least paid, the most insecure. Anyway, so so so, I think that the argument of this section of the book is we sh- we should decide collectively what matters and what we want to protect. I, walking and cycling is in there too. You know, we should. It's not meant to be anti-car because electric cars are going to re- replace uh, petrol and diesel cars, but we can't drive as many cars as we did um, in the year of petrol and diesel cars. But but. It's up to us to decide how we want to configure our towns and cities for walking, cycling, public transport and cars, not just let us let the market decide. And and I think that is, that is a big feature of the last 40 years, is the intervention of markets in, in being the sort of judge and jury of the way our society runs, how people succeed, whether people have an income to live on and all of those things. You've know, got a welfare safety net, which is just absolutely full of ma- massive, massive problem so so i think i think mastering the market giving a sense that society you know our our what we value is is what is what should govern our society not the market is a servant not a master basically
1: but how do you convince people yes exactly given that it is so mighty and it has remained so mighty and given that parties which essentially you know, advocate its might have but, kept being voted but, into but power, you know, what do we inter-
2: do? It's interesting, This. I don't want to be sound complacent about this, and maybe the, the, the sort of honest answer is if I knew exactly how to convince people I'd be prime minister. Uh, um, oh, taunt me more, uh, uh, don't worry. Um, I, I would still be on this stage with you. But, but, the, um, <laughs> uh, but, but when I propose that we intervene in energy prices in, um, when I was leader and put a cap on energy prices, you know, C- Cameron famously said you're living in a Marxist universe. And now it's government policy. Yes. And, OK, I don't think that's the sort of be all and end all. But I think, I think it's interesting because I think the, the, the sort of the political terrain has shifted even since I was leader. You know, I think there is more acceptance now that the market on its own isn't determining. Now, the question is, what does the future then hold? What does the future then look like? Um, and that's that's what's up for grabs, I think.
1: Well, that leads us neatly into the third part of the book, which you have, I'm going to say, slightly tongue-in-cheekily called taking back control. Yes. <laughs> so I, I, this is the bit where I feel like we often come unstuck, is going, here are the problems. Yes. We, we all agree, yes. i.e. people who feel the way we do, all agree that we need solutions to these problems. And then the the, the solutions which are proposed and the, the world in which yeah. people go and and put their one cross in one box yeah. on election day there's just no connection between those
2: and that's such a inadequate on its own and representative democracy is a magical thing it needs to be defended but on its own it's just not enough and I think I, I, I actually believe it's just not enough because people expect more now people don't sort of any longer think I mean they it's not surprising they don't think the, this, but they don't think all oh, the politicians are so wise, we'll just let them get on with it. Uh, I wonder
1: why we don't think that Yeah, anymore. I wonder, it's
2: mysterious, isn't it? Um, but you know, so, so I think, and, and so what, the, what this section of the book argues for is both reinvigorating representative democracy, giving votes to 16 and 17 year olds, putting much greater power to local government, devolving power, we are still the most set, England is still the, I know we're in Wales, but, and we've had devolution in Wales, Um, But but Britain as a whole, and England in particular, is still the most centralised country in in Europe. So so devolution, votes at 16, um, and then going beyond beyond representative democracy. I think this is important. So again, this is one of these things where if you lift your eyes, you discover something interesting has been going on. So in Ireland, they've had these two referenda on um, same-sex, equal marriage, and on abortion. People probably know that. What people know less is that they were prefigured by um, these citizens' assemblies, which brought together representative samples from across Ireland to debate these issues. And basically, the politicians were too timid. Yes. And thought we can't really do anything about these questions. But is you, that
1: partly because of our media culture, that possibly, if a politician stood up in Ireland, possibly, a country which was largely, it turned out, in favour of possibly, equal marriage and said, I'm in favour of equal marriage, they would have metaphorical rocks thrown at them for the rest of their careers. Po- so it's making possibly, them very timid. Whereas it, when an assembly yeah, paved that way for them...
2: And it sort of, it made them braver. Mm-hmm. and And... You know, I sort of think this has got quite a lot of application. You know, take the social care crisis. Why not do a big citizens' assembly uh, across the UK on on how you tackle the the social care crisis? Um, And, and, you know, whether people are willing to pay more, how people want to pay uh, for the care that we we desperately need and for paying uh, carers properly. Um, Climate. You know, we have an expert committee, the Climate Change Committee, which I set up as part of the Climate Change Act, on climate, but you know, we've got 20, 30 years, we've got to make this massive transition. We definitely need people to come with us. Why not, why not do this for climate? And then, and then also, and this is important, I think, is workplace democracy. So we are unusual, I'm afraid, across Europe in having such little voice for workers, not just through trade unions, but through works councils, workers on boards, all of those things. I mean, this is why politics is, is a bit zany, because Theresa May proposed workers on boards. Now, she then backed off it. Yes. Um, but, I mean, it is interesting, you see. She was saying, well, look, I don't think uh, workers have enough say. So so I think, you know, does our democracy, excuse me, have a problem? Yes. Just in the last six general elections, the turnout has been lower than in every previous election since universal suffrage. So, you know. People, and people aren't not voting because they think we're all brilliant. You know what I yeah. mean? Uh, they think, all oh, the politicians are great. Uh, I've never yeah, met... I'm
1: so happy. I don't exactly. mind who gets it. I've them. never met Everyone's a voter a who
2: says, you know, oh, I, I love you all. So I'm, yeah. I'm I just can't choose between Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I'm just indifferent to who, who which of you is best. Uh, so, so you know, we've got a problem. We need to reinvigorate it. Um, I actually think things like what Andy Burnham has done in Greater Manchester... But even that, by the way, I was talking to him recently about this. You know, bus services are, uh, certainly in Doncaster, uh, in Manchester too, a nightmare. Actually, uh, uh, seemingly everywhere outside London. Um, and he's, he's taking some back control of some of the bus services, a London-style regulation. But here's the thing about what is so wrong about the way we run our country. Uh, if Andy wants to own, wants to run a municipal bus company, he can't because the, by law, Westminster has um, forbidden it. And that is, that's why local democracy in England is so limited. And so anyway, I think there's all kinds of ways we can reinvigorate uh, our democracy.
1: You speak very passionately about younger voters, and I think it's a, it's a wonderful argument that you make with recourse to the Scottish independence referendum, um, that we've tended to say, well, young people don't turn out to vote, so the answer is, Ugh. Wait till yeah. they get older and then yeah. maybe they'll feel like it. And actually, you suggested that if we go younger, if we let people vote yeah. at 16 rather than at 18, in fact, you engage young voters to vote on that issue and then in subsequent wh-
2: elections. Wh- exactly, and which Austria does. Um, I think Austria is a, is a trailblazer across Europe in doing it. Um, and, and, you know, there is definitely... And, and, you know, if ever we needed to hear the voice of young people in our politics, it's now because of climate. You know we're in this decisive decade on the climate crisis. is young people who are going to be affected most by it um, they speak for themselves and for future generations so so I, I think you know now is definitely the time
1: Yes, I think so. you talk a lot about local solutions to local problems yeah. and how very difficult that is to to construct in this country. Well, I think most of us don't realize how incredibly detailed the tentacles of Westminster are. I got, um, as an example, um, I did an event for the British Museum a few weeks ago, and as you would expect, then get um, lots of people being very angry with me that I personally haven't returned the Parthenon Frieze to Athens, which, I, in fairness to them, I haven't. Um, but, but the British Museum can't either because there was an Act of Parliament <laughs> which prevents them from doing it. And it's like, there's an Act of Parliament doing what now? Yeah. And it's, it's a museum. How does it not have... But it, it turns out that these mysterious and extremely specific laws against creating bus services or you know, discussing the contents of a museum's collection nonetheless exist in this country.
2: I, I know, and it, it, there is a sort of really weird, um, it, well, it's a sort of, it's an odd conspiracy of left and right, actually, that the, the right was worried about so-called hotbeds of socialism, and the left thought, well, if we take power centrally, and pull the levers, we can then sort of enact transformation. Um, and, you know, central government's got a massive role. I also think, by the way, that devolution in Scotland and Wales have worked. And, and you know, it was passed in Wales very, very narrowly when it was in the 1990s, late 90s. And I think it will be passed by a much bigger majority now. You know, I think it, I think, I think it is interesting. You know, if you, give, if you put power near to where people are, nearer to where people are. You, you know, sometimes people think, oh, this is just an arcane argument about which politicians have power. I don't think it's about which politicians have power. I think it's actually about whether people can control. And by the way, take back control was a great slogan because it did speak to what people feel about their, li- their lives, which is so much is out of control. Um, so, so I think it's about whether people have control of what matters to them.
1: So in section four, yeah. when we start to look at solutions to problems and uh, in in real detail. I did find myself wondering if we should all just move to Scandinavia, people who Mm, feel like we feel. Interesting. Um, And then I thought, you know, I'm sure people- Don't give up on Britain, I would say. I'm I'm trying really hard not to, although in fairness, I am partly Belgian, Um, but I'm not sure. Interesting. Thanks. My dad (laughs) was- Said
2: no one ever until today. I did. (laughs) My dad was Belgian.
1: Uh, The best people, my dad is Belgian. Wow. I know. Brussels? (laughs) Oh. Brussels? <laughs> so further uh, into Flanders. Right. Um, sorry, everyone. I don't know how we got sidetracked Bel- into
2: Belgium. Belgian chips are really nice.
1: Chip- Belgian chips are really nice. Yeah, I mean,
2: they're really good. I mean, Belgian they have all chips. the
1: major food groups. Really good cake, really yeah. good chips, really yeah. good chocolate. Oh, and beer. Um, uh, yeah,
2: Belgian beer, definitely. I mean,
1: I'm just saying.
2: Uh,
1: Is it There wasn't though? enough
2: Belgium in the book.
1: I, I don't you like to criticise, it. but... Yeah. <laughs> where that I mean, is true i think
2: volume two will be we'll have more belgium <laughs> the okay? belgium years yeah exactly <laughs> I've, I've, go small innovations from belgium okay i've i've made it i've definitely made a note of that
1: good i'm glad to, to honor our heritage there. Thank you. I appreciate it. Is it useful, do you think, that we've got other... I mean, this is a real other theme Belgians. of the book, no, that no. you look around the world at other political systems. Definitely. Not necessarily Belgium, who obviously Definitely. broke the record earlier oh. this century for going without but a honestly, functioning government.
2: It is also really inspiring. You know, the thing that occurs to me in the last section is the um, there's this thing in America called the Fight for 15, which is this fight for a $15 minimum wage. And honestly, this Fight for 15 is amazing because it started with 200 fast food workers in... Uh, uh, in New York in, uh, in the mid sort of, middle of the last decade. And it's now, I think, 22 million people have got laws across America for a $15 minimum wage. It was 7 dollars at this point, the, 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 the national, the, the sort of federal minimum wage and indeed the state minimum wage. And it's become a sort of mainstream part of the program. And here's what's really interesting about politics. Trump won Florida, as people will know, but Florida also passed a constitutional amendment, which I think is what you've got to do in Florida to get something changed by a referenda, where 60% of people voted for a $15 minimum wage. So in other words, a Trump voting state was also a $15 minimum wage voting state. But America
1: does this all. I mean, Alaska is really conservative, and yet they have...
2: What's as close to universal basic income as... as, as anywhere, as anywhere uh, in the world, and
1: the approval numbers on it, and the doing... <laughs> approval
2: numbers are sort of through the roof. Like the, it's like the NHS. It's like
1: ninety-five yeah. percent of people are in favour of yeah. keeping it, while simultaneously voting for a small government governor.
2: It's it is it is a strange country, much as I love it. Yeah, but I think, but I think it did sort of. There are sort of lessons in this about. See, maybe that's what makes me a bit of uh, an optimist. Is that I think you know, people, some people look at Trump and Brexit and all of that and think or oh, you know uh this is sort of what does it mean and, and and it means a whole range of things i'm sure but i think one of the things that it means is that it, it is rooted in the problems of the economic system and the economic the need for change in the economic system and the florida example shows it but i mean it's not just the the 15 the fight for 15 it's you know the lo- local government leaders in Preston he you know in in england doing incredible things um it's, it's people, the, the divestment campaign, divestment from fossil fuels. And also, um, I just will briefly mention this. I, when I lost, um, being leader of the Labour Party, I, when I lost the election, I went into this community organising course, which I would strongly recommend. It's
1: such a great story.
2: Um, it
1: properly sounds like you turned up and went, hello, my name is Ed Miliband and I have a problem. No,
2: definitely my problem is true. I really
1: like organising communities and it's I don't know how to go about exactly,
2: it. Exactly, that's <laughs> exactly I just lost an election. Uh, no, it's definitely true. I was... I was I, it was in the October of 2015, and uh, uh, the Citizens UK, which some people will know, and there's a great Citizens Wales actually, um, and that's in the book. Uh, they campaign for the living wage, fair housing, and so on. And you know, they they are about this community organising method, which is a method of how you connect people together at, at the grassroots and make change happen. And and that sounds over, oh, well, that's, you know anyone can do that, but there's a real method to it, and there's a five day training course which I would recommend anybody uh, in our audience or watching this to, to go and do because it's um, it's just an amazing experience and uh, um, and the thing that I say in, this, in the book, the thing that switched the light on was these Somali young people in Cardiff who citizens worked with to get a halal Nando's uh, because the thing they really wanted was a halal Nando's and, and all the Nando's in Cardiff were not halal and it's about their campaign for that and it's sort of that example is about that even when even people who think they don't have any power they have latent power which which can be unleashed to make to make change happen so and i found it a brilliant a brilliant thing to do
0: thanks for listening to the hay festival podcast next week we're going back to the 1980s and the beginning of the national hiv aids crisis through ruth Coker burke's all the young men a story of a single mother in America who finds herself fighting for the rights of the young men at the heart of the epidemic. Do share this podcast with your friends and it helps to give us a rating wherever you're listening. This podcast was presented by Poppy Evans. I'll see you next Friday.